Welcome to the Break Magazine podcast. My name is Lel Pavey. And today's episode, we are going to talk about the, the art of traveling on tiny, cheap, shit, whatever you want to call them, bikes. Uh, bikes that are essentially... Shit's a strong word. Essentially, <laughs> maybe it is, but essentially bikes that are not 10,000 pound, 800 CC adventure bikes. They are the bike that you have available to you. And I think it's something that is often overlooked that the bike you've got in the shed or the one that you can pay for in the cash that's in your bank account is possibly the best bike for you to use. I don't think it's an unpopular opinion to say that any bike can be an adventure bike. You can have a great time on anything that can get you from A to B. But the mainstream production of adventure bikes has started to diverse a little bit now in that direction. We've got a really big spread from bikes like a CRF 250L Rally or uh, the quite popular now Royal Enfield Himalayan. I think our guest today, Nathan, owns one still. Um, Mm -hmm. All the way up to bikes like the 1250 GSA and KTM 1290 Super Adventure, which are a million miles apart. They're intended for different things. They're technologically and everything about them is incredibly different but there's a lot to be said for that that style of just getting your hands on a bike embracing the limitations of it and going and having a good time and i think if there is one person that i know of that has done that more than anyone else and in a really unbiased uh almost quite a pleasant embrace of that to watch from the outside is today's guest nathan millward And your journey started from that exact point of, I want to go away from the situation I'm in and ride somewhere. And this is the bike I can afford. And that was with an Aussie postie bike. So it was a CT110 that you started? A CT110, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is the classic bike that Australian postal service workers use to deliver the post on a daily basis. 20,000 miles later, all the way across Europe, all the way across North America, and now, at this point in your kind of career, several uh, generations of testing and riding and owning cheaper shit bikes. Uh, I think you've quite yeah. you've quite openly become a really big fan of odd, small, quirky bikes for what they are actually really good at. Um, and without doing you like a disservice. <laughs> It's not that you're a big bike hater. You owned an R1200GS for a while. You rode across the Americas with it. You traveled around Iceland with it. Both of those trips with your partner on the back, I believe. So it's, yep. it's not as though you're you're stuck in this camp where you... Do you know I own a motor... I, do you know I own a Moto Guzzi V85? I did as well, yeah. <laughs> so it's not... So, it's not, you're not if I'm you, still in the gang. For me... I'm still in the big gang. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the beauty of this conversation is that it's not that you're you're set on one camp being a certain way and you must always ride X bike. It's the only way to go. And I think this podcast for me is is definitely about exploring the subject of, of, the, uh, of choosing the right direction for you and understanding what the limitations are of choosing to ride a cheaper or uh, smaller bike and how to get over those limitations. So, firstly, welcome to the podcast. I started this thing one podcast ago where I told people about the beer I was drinking. So today's podcast is brought to you by the Juicebox Citrus IPA from the Four Pure Brewing Company. I noticed you've got beer as well, so what are you drinking? I've gone for the more manly option of a tribute ale, pale ale, uh, from a Cornish brewery close to our Devonshire home. A very strong 4.2%. 
Well, you know, I'm only I'm only three hours, <laughs> and I've only got one. <laughs> <laughs> I've only got one as well because I've got to drive home from the office after this. So, oh. I think the thing that has made you most well known is that original trip that you did from Sydney to London on a posty bike. When you set off, what did you think about your choice of bike, and what what was the main reason that you chose that bike? Well, it was, it was the right bike for that trip at that time, I, I think. Obviously, um, not having a lot of money. or I mean, this was before I was really into bikes again. I'd had, I'd had, TZR, I'd had an AR50 and TZR125 as sort of 16, 17-year-old. I'd gone 10 years without a license, so I wasn't really, at that point in my life, I'd got no idea what the current scene was. I'd got no idea uh about i don't know what might have been happening back then what were in ktm 950s or 990s or gs i really got no idea what the market was but i always knew that i mean i'd always knew that a small bike could take you as far as you needed to take you i I used to i was working in australia on a performance car magazine called motor uh, and there was a guy there thomas walecki who's a um really sort of creative photographer and journalist and he went around Australia on a posty bike and he, he used to tell me about this trip when I was working with him and sat in the you know I'd, I'd either be driving or he'd be in the passenger seat so he told me about this trip around Australia on a posty bike and um so so to me it was kind of like that became the obvious or oh, a obvious choice um and so for, to ride from Sydney to London um on a whim with no real planning and no real budget no real mechanical knowledge or no real urgency or no need to you know it wasn't like i was going to tackle i wasn't doing like lyndon poskett and wanting to race along the way i kind of just wanted to get there on a cheap bike that was easy to maintain uh, and something i could afford to buy so really the postie was the only bike under consideration really you know and i, and I will be honest like apart from its speed it's a perfect round the world bike if that bike could do sort of 60 mile an hour it'd be absolutely perfect because it's it's cheap simple and reliable and, and, and those virtues of overland travel, that's kind of all, all you need. And, and, you know, in a sense, that's why I love the Himalayan as a travel bike. I know, obviously, it's a, an adventure bike in terms of an, a, a more of an off-road-centric enduro-based background. I, I know it kind of maybe falls flat, but as a as a travel package, I guess that's why I've migrated to that because I just I love its cheapness. I love, I love that it's, it's, it's pretty good to ride. It's, it's pretty good on, on roads. It's pretty good off-road. It, you know, it's not excellent at anything, but it doesn't need to be because it's four grand. Mm. So, you know, say you're going to go out world tomorrow, you could buy a four grand Himalayan. You, you know, for 10 grand, you you could go out world. You can't, it wouldn't be a lot of money. So you couldn't even buy a brand new GS12 or something like that for, for the equivalent amount of money that you could buy an Himalayan go out world. Mm. So that kind of, I guess that's why I, I still uh, find merit in the in the budget end of, of I guess, a travel bike. Uh, but it all, it all depends what you wanted to do with it. You know, I love my GS1200, and for good across America Tour, is a perfect bike. I wouldn't go out world on a GS1200 because I think it'd be a liability, both in terms of car day, shipping costs, complexities of getting tires, or even like getting the right oil for a GS12 in, say, India might be difficult. You might not be able to get it, was it 1550 or something? So you've got all these sort of like high, you know, you, you don't need exotic, you don't need performance, you don't need expensiveness when you're in the middle of India on a dirt trail. You just need a bike that's going to get to the end of that trail so so the ct110 actually apart from its occasional frustrations of speed like when you're on the autobahn doing 45 miles an hour then you kind of wish for just a little bit more power but when you go through thailand as india and india it's kind of all right you know you, you kind of accept that 40 miles an hour is what you can do and 
the beauty that you can get tires anywhere is like the biggest buzz because you know if you need a new bike tire you just go to any local street corner waller in indonesia it'll, it'll fit your tire for four quid i mean that so when you see people on big bikes carrying you know a spare set of tkc 80s because they know they can't get them you think my god you're mental like you know it's not it's you know that's so you got it. So it's a practical from a practical point of view. Uh, that's all. A simple small bike makes does make a lot of sense. And then you've also got the issue of like insurance. So you can't insure. It's very difficult, or I'd say impossible, to insure a foreign plated bike in places like India or Pakistan or China. You're literally working on the theory that if anything happens to that bike, then it's a comp- you know you've got to write it off. You've got to say goodbye to that bike. So if you're on a two thousand dollar posty bike. And that bike gets stolen or it falls off a cliff, you're two thousand dollars down. You set off on a like a, a brand new uh, like my guzzy. You know, if I set off on my guzzy tomorrow out world and it got nicked by somebody in Iran or I don't know, Russia, I'm I'm ten grand down. Like I've lost ten grand. Mm. Plus my carnage cost me four grand. Yeah. So you know, I think for the average person, the the, the cheap bike still makes a lot of sense. For any big trip where you're going out outside, like I guess North America, Western Europe, Australia, you know, any any sort of third, I don't want to say, I don't like saying third world, but you know what I mean, developing world, any developing world country, there's still a lot of merit in taking uh, cheap, cheap, small light. I mean, I would love to have taken my GS12 around the world. I love that bike, but I would have needed pockets as deep as as somebody else to to you know to take that bike around the world. I need like you know you need like thirty grand. Because you need to be able to, you need to be able to afford to be able to write off that bike. So complete loss that on that bike. You'd have to be able to afford the carne. You'd have to be able to afford the tires and the shipping, and because everything goes on volume weight. So you've got a big heavy bike. You've got to pay big heavy cost for shipping. So 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 it's not that though. It's not that. I've, it's just practicality. When it comes down to the practicality and the affordability of doing a big trip, sometimes a cheap bike makes it affordable for the average person, I guess. Which is which is why. The CT110, it is slow, but I had to push it up the Himalayas and over the Rockies, which pushing a motorbike is not the most enjoyable uh, feature of life. But, uh, you know, kind of every, every when you go to a shipping agency and you say, I want to sh- send my bike to America, and they say, how much does it weigh? And you say 95 kilos. They say, oh, that's 600 pounds. Mm-hmm. But when I took my Jeff, it's like 1,200 pounds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're kind of weighing everything up, isn't it? Like what? So, if you're really well healed, then a big bike works. So if you're not, you kind of touched on a, re- a couple of really good points there. That the that riding something like a posty bike comes with some positives, and it comes with some negatives. So, when you're traveling on a tiny bike, something like a hundred cc, two hundred cc bike, what are those limitations, and what are the positivities beyond just the financial side of it? I mean, the limitations of a 105cc bike are nothing. There are no limitations, really, because you can you, you, you can still go anywhere you could go, if not further places than on a big bike. You, know, you could take up a 105cc up a, up a path or over a narrow bridge, or you could go places on a small bike that you could never go on a big bike, especially if you've got big luggage on and stuff like that. Uh, so I suppose the limitation is maybe distance to cover if you're in a rush, you know, going across America – then the limitation was that you couldn't go on the interstate you had to go on the back roads and you know when you're getting passed by trucks doing sort of 80 miles an hour and you're doing 37 miles an hour again it gets a bit twitchy but there's no limitation to where that bike can take you it's just maybe you've just got to have 
you, you know, it, um, with, a, with, a, with a small bike, it's all about getting into a routine and getting up early and riding. Short stops and riding. Short stops and riding. So I actually find you can cover pretty much not not much out in terms of distance because but the flexibility like, I mean I, the flexibility, it's a flexibility. go with that because if you want to if you want to ch- like go somewhere a bit further afield or change the plan you start to become limited by the amount of ground that you can cover in an open environment say like in America yeah 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 but i, I suppose that again it's cutting the suit cut them what is it so it's the cloth or whatever because i mean like if i was good america, across america and i only had two weeks i wouldn't have took a posty bike but because i had sort of like six weeks or seven weeks like who cares if you can only do 40 mile now because i could still do 300 miles a day like three, 300 350 and the beauty of us and, and i find the beauty of a small bike traveling at that speed it takes no energy out of you so you're fresh to do 350 miles every day for a week Whereas when we come across two up on the GS, I was really flagging after a week or so doing sort of 200 miles. I, you know, I had to have days off. We had to rest just because the mental capacity to, to, to ride a bike, you know, that can go on the interstate and you got all that weight. It just takes more out of you than when you just sat there in a daydream doing 40 mile an hour with your other hand sort of like, you know, when you don't got a clutch and you, you can wave at anyone and take photos. So, so I, I, I suppose ultimately, you know, we're talking about one extreme. If I was going around the world tomorrow, I wouldn't choose a 105cc because, yes, it is nicer just to have that little extra burst of power. But I think a 250 is more than more than. There's no compromise really in a 250. I don't see for going around the world or any or like a Pan America or even across America. You know, I did a coast to coast on the Himalayan, like, and that was leading a group. So the issue there was I had faster bikes behind me. And that was a bit frustrating, possibly for them at times. And at the end of the day, the group I was supposed to be leading just kept overtaking me, and then they wait for me. But that, you know, the only limitation with the, say the him then is like when you're on the interstate or when you're going up through Colorado, and the and the altitude saps a bit of power. But other than that, you know, that's a 24 horsepower bike that went across America, no problems and with no limitations. And the benefit of that slightly smaller bike with a more manageable weight was that when I got to a destination, say in Moab or uh utah i could go off on an evening and just explore some sand trails because i knew i weren't going to really get into any trouble the guys on like the Tenere or the africa twin you know i, I ride a bit off-road i'm not like a pro but i feel confident off-road but i wouldn't take a one of those size bikes on a sand trail which i didn't know where it took me to because i think i'd be like oh you know if i'm, I'm going to do myself an injury whereas on something like the himalayan more so on a crf 250l you could go off any sand track you wanted and start exploring without any real fear of getting stuck under the bike or, or I don't know, any you know, big issue. So, um, but then, but I guess equally not everyone wants to go across America on a 65 mile an hour bike. No, but I think it's, it's quite an interesting point that you touched on that, that in terms of, uh, exploring and getting off the beaten path, which I think a lot of traveling is about it is, a, is then kind of stepping into the realms of choosing a bike that is within your technical capability. Because if you're a really good off-road rider, like I was quite fortunate to go to Moab a few years ago on an 1190R, and because of my quite lucky background in growing up riding dirt bikes, I'm really comfortable to take that bike everywhere. But if you're not of that level of experience, then you kind of almost make your experience detrimental by choosing a bike that is theoretically maybe a bit more comfortable at dealing with the higher-end stuff 
you take away the ability, like you said, to explore some really amazing places. Like I think Moab's an incredible experience because if you just ride into Moab and you you see the main rocks, you get one view of it and one experience. But if you go out and you explore the slick rock and some of the sand trails, like you've said, it's incredible. It's an amazing place to ride a motorbike. But if you never see that, I think you miss out on a really big part of what makes it special. So yeah, for sure. Like one of the biggest positivities of, of choosing to ride a, a more limited bike is that it allows you to, to maximize what ability you've got on a motorcycle. Yeah, I think so. Cause I think reality is, there's not, you know, most people who ride adventure bikes or go do that aren't, they haven't got your youth talent or skill, but, the the image presented is that those bikes are capable of it, and obviously we both know that those bikes, any of those bikes of a of a size, are very capable in the right hands, but very incapable in the wrong hands, and very detrimental to the enjoyment and capacity to enjoy an adventure. I mean, I see even on the Lands End Johnny Groats or Irish trips I organise, you know, I will get people turn up on a GS12 or something. And and the bike is too big physically for them. It, it limits their ability to, to even comfortably park on a campsite or to go up a, a single track road and things like that. So they've obviously bought that bike thinking that bike is the right bike for them. When actually they bought an Africa Twin, twin but a 500X would be a better bet. Or they bought a GS and maybe a 310. Uh, they bought a GS12 and maybe a 310 would be better. Uh, and, uh, and so I think it's just being aware of your – but it's being realistic, isn't it? I mean, it was self-awareness to say, actually – I'm not that great a rider or I'm not that tall or I'm not that strong or I'm not that youthful anymore. So actually I, I, I want something that's going to suit what I'm capable of. But I think the male ego especially leads the, leads us to buy the biggest, strongest, fastest uh, bike we can, thinking that's going to make us look tough and, and, and rugged and handsome. And a bike can't cure those ills. Can't do anything. I mean, look at I've got a guzzy, but it's not fixed my problems. <laughs> I, well, we'll talk about that in a bit because I don't know it's fixing anyone's problems. Um, I like that guzzy. Yeah, but that, this is where we come from. This is where we come from a different position. So you're, you're, and that's the issue. I think that's the difficulty with adventure. It covers such a broad brushstroke, of, of, and everyone's perception of it is. I mean, you have a wheelie Wednesday. I mean, I've never done a wheelie deliberately in my life ever. But I've been around the world and I could go around the world tomorrow. I, I think I, uh, you've missed the boat with my uh, my issue with the V85, uh, the, the, with the with the guzzy. Guzzy? Well, what was the issue? Is the, what was the issue not, with not, uh, not how good it is. It's the fact that the original colour scheme and those beautiful round headlights that they put on the front of it make it look mm-hmm. exactly... And this is a very British reference. It looks exactly Rob. like Noddy's car. 100%. That's why I've got a blue one. That's why I've got a blue one. That's okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> I went for subtlety. Although it looks a bit crappy, but I'll be honest. You touched a little bit on it there um, when you kind of mentioned that maybe the CRF250L is potentially a little bit better at something. But have you ever come across when you're riding a smaller bike that within its off-road capacity, there is a limitation? Like you come to hills where it can't deal with the hill. It's just not quite capable or you don't have the finesse or maybe just the chassis in general is not designed for off-road riding enough that it's held you back or in your travels, has it always just been a situation of I'm never pushing the limit that far that I find that limit of the bike? 
Yeah, I think I think you you know you'd be a foolish man to be riding around the world on the limit. I, 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 that's my personal ex- belief. If if you if you're riding ten tenths and you're on your own in the middle of nowhere, you're going to end up dead in the middle of nowhere. So um, you know within limits. So let me take the CT one ten as an example. There were times at altitude when that bike struggled. So yes, a bit more power would be beneficial. But then there are other times when the be- the beauty of a 95 kilo weight overruled any p- power issues. You know, when you could thread down really narrow gorges or lift a bike over a, a mounted wild camp or lay a bike on its side to do some wild camping on a building site so nobody saw you. You know, you could be discreet on a 95 kilo bike in a way that you never could be on a 250 kilo bike. Um, I think if you had, a, say, a 250cc, you would have no issue with any terrain anywhere. Um, I, I, so I think that's where, I, I guess that's where, you know, I, that's where the post the postage does have its limitations. But at the same time, so I've got eight posties here in the UK. And so in winter, I was, I, the idea was to take people on guarded North Devon postal bike tours. So we do a bit of gentle green laning. So I've got, I actually had 10, but I sold two. Sadly, they were a great loss to the family. But um, so I took a group out in winter, like, you know, depths of winter, January this year. And around us, we haven't got anything hugely challenging in North Devon, but we've got steep, sludgy lanes that I wouldn't be able to get up on, 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 or, well, I'd struggle to get up on, on a, on a medium sized bike. I certainly struggle to get up on, on a GS or something like that. And that'd be my limit. You know, I, I think I'd, I'd really struggle. Um, but I took novice riders who'd never done off-road, and we went up them lanes on a posty bike because you can put your feet down, you can r- ride it through in first gear. You, it's clutchless, so you haven't got a clutch to worry about. You're not going to stall it. You know, you, you, when it's, it's hilarious, like, following people up who are novices on posty bikes up an incline, which they'd never, ever dreamt of going up because they're just bouncing everywhere. The legs are all over sharp. But, you know, they just get up it. So really, to me, like that bike is a real enabler of people to go on terrain that they never would have dreamed possible of going on anything else. Obviously, like yourself and other talented riders would be able to fly up that mountain or that terrain twice as quick on on a bigger bike. But for the average untalented rider out there, something like small is an enabler to do terrain that would otherwise be beyond their capabilities. So you know, but then, yeah, I don't know. I'm not saying there's a right and wrong. I'm just, I just think no. sometimes a small bike is, 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 is like a post is the extreme. You know, so I, I think we, I wouldn't, I'd never advise anybody goes around world on a posty bike. God, Jesus Christ, really, I'd rather cycle around world than go around on a posty bike again. But you know, it's something kind of that weight, but with a bit like a CRF 250. I mean, my only gripe with the CRF 250 is, I mean, Honda were probably building better bikes 20 years ago. I mean, all the manufacturers have got as lazy as anything, haven't they? I mean, let's, let's be honest, that L is a good buy. I'm not really knocking the buy, but I'm knocking the company for producing a buy that's probably no better than an XR250, or probably worse than an XR250, 20 years ago. So Honda have got lazy. I mean, Kawasaki, they've given us a Versus 300. I mean, where's, 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 that, where's the meat in their sandwich? Suzuki, they've obviously given up the ghost. And I mean, I love the V-Strom to death, but let's not pretend it's... Um, it's it's a it's it's what it could be um i mean i still i just think which always brings me v-strom's a great street bike 
I love the street. I've got the 1050 XT on test, and I love that bike. I think it's such a good bike. It would suit so many more people. It would suit the people who just sniff sniff the noses at it because it's not adventurous enough, you know, because it's not got a 21-inch wheel, blah, blah, blah. But actually, for most people, 95% of the adventure market, it would suit far better to me, I think, than an Africa Twin. Because, you know, unless you're going off-road, you, you know, the Africa Twin is kind of a bit doughy and a bit soft and a bit wallowy and a bit... I don't find it as a great road bike at all, but I get on that 1050 and I think, wow, what a great adventure, like what a great adventure bike. What a great road bike that could do a bit of gravel track. Mm-hmm. Um, what am I on about now? But then Suzuki gave us a V-Strom 250. Yeah. I mean, what were they thinking? Yeah, well, it's You know, it's, a, it, it, it's an inner zoomer in drag. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, which is why I, I do, I've got to be honest, I love the Himalayan because it, it's just a, it, at least it's given poor person the chance and, and i see it on the forums the himalayan forums are full of people who've never done off-road before but they're taking the himalayan trail riding or like it's in green lane well, or they're going camp touched on it before but it solves probably quite a similar problem to to what the posty bike solves in that even though i think the himalayan is actually a pretty heavy bike but mm, mm-hmm. it's close to the ground and that for people is just that's 50 percent of your confidence is knowing that you can get your feet down and if you can get your feet down you can probably muddle through and that's a big problem solver because obviously i think as a as a dirt bike style bike you touched on it before the himalayan is fine it does most dirt bike riding stuff fine but it's not amazing you know it's not it's not got the capacity of a say a tenere 700 or a 790 to to excel off-road but it almost doesn't need to because what what Roy it's- to do was really grounded and that kind of leads me into my next question which was about your garbage run and then your transition into to buying the himalayan so i think we should explain a little bit what the garbage run is but my understanding is that in 2017 you started with a ride that went from one end of the uk to the other and the point was to create a ride that was budget friendly, that wasn't a trip that costs £2,000 and is a guided tour and only accessible if you've got £2,000 of spare cash. It was meant to be cheap, 250 quid, something like that. And then people could... Free, the first one, Lel. I mean, that's how generous I am. It's free. Wow. You're doing this you know. business thing wrong, Nathan. <laughs> I know, I know. So I'll get the anger this one one of these days. And so I think that's actually a really a really kind of almost noble concept, you know, that you're you're creating a, a something that ha- has a lot of value for people, but you're not really asking for that much in return. Like even with your garbage runs now, there's no massive requirement for them to follow you. There's no there's a lot of flexibility about it, and it's also very price friendly. So within that, you then chose the Himalayan as your personal bike, which I think, especially in journalist world, like let's be honest, your part part of your income is from testing and reviewing bikes. For a journalist to buy a bike is rare. <laughs> um, where, why choose the Himalayan? Where does it win? And and where do you sometimes wish that it was a little bit different? I guess I was curious about it because, you know, as I say, the virtues of, of, uh, of the posty bike, lightweight, cheap, but capable. I, can't, I don't know why. I just saw, saw it shine through a little bit. And then obviously we all saw the foot peg break off in the promo video. I thought it's going to be absolute shit. And then I saw it at the NEC. I thought, oh, I don't look bad. And then I think I broke my ankle that winter. Uh, on my, see, I've got a Husqvarna TR650 as well. which uh, I, I love that bike, but it's not. I wouldn't use it as a travel bike mainly because I've, 
<laughs> I have mechanical issues with it from now and again. But uh, um, so it was a winter, and I just thought, you know, I need a bike for for next year for the guiding. And I thought, well, there's a bike. It's four grand. I can put some five hundred pound panniers on it. It's brand new because I'm not great with spanners, so I like something that's under warranty. And I'm just going to give it a go. And I've never ridden one. I just uh, I met Ian Cooper, Cooper who runs Cooper in Northampton at a show. And he he read my book, so he gave me. I think I got five percent off. So. So I didn't get, I didn't pay full price, so I will declare that. Um, and I just thought, I'm going to buy it. Because I do, I've got to be honest, I like owning my bike. You know, we do, yeah, I could get pressed bikes, I suppose, but I, I'm not very good at begging for bikes. I'm not very good at telling people their bikes are wonderful. Which is why, you know, I, I went into that Himalayan, and the first time I rode it, I'd, I'd, I'd just recovered from my broken ankle. I was a bit dodgy. I probably shouldn't have been out on it, but I thought, I'll take it for a run. Because I got it delivered when I'd still got it in cast. So I took it for a run and I rode it on the road. I was living in Worcester and I, would ride, I rode some like some A and B roads. I thought, it's all right. It feels good. You know, you know, a bike to me, it's almost you can tell with it, a bike's going to suit you within about a mile because it just, you just sit on it right. You know, something like the KTM 790 Adventure, for example, I sat on that road a mile on that. I thought, don't suit me. And I know that's illogical in many ways, but, and it's not very good from an objective journalist point of view. You've obviously got to dig a di- bit deeper, but. I rode down the road on the Himalayan. I thought, this feels all right, actually. feels good. And I got on some dirt road, some green laning, and I stood up. I thought, all right, it's a bit flurried in the cars, but I can stand up on it. It's got a nice, natural, upright standing position. I love the throttle uh, response. I mean, it's really I mean, it's really subtle and talky, and, and, and I just liked everything about it. And I came back from that first ride, and I thought, I've got a good bike there. You know, I'm happy with that. And I put on some 500-pound panniers, and I went up and down Land's End, Johnny Goats, twice that year and around Ireland on it. And I went across America on it. I did like 18,000 miles in four or five months. And I thought, well, for four grand, like, what what planet are you on to say this is not a good bike for four grand? And the, I mean, it, there's there's issues. The issues are that it, the Indians, bless them, their souls, couldn't get the grasp of building it entirely 100%. You know, so a bit of under quality control would, wouldn't go amiss. I mean, you've got the the steering bearings dry out and go notchy because they've not put a very good weather seal on them. And mine blew an egg gasket, I think, before America. But again, why I love that bike. So, you you, you know, you might have a steering like concrete and you might have a blowing it, blowing egg gasket, but it'll still take you across America. You know, and that, and it's got a center stand. It's standard. Brilliant. It's got a rear racker standard. Brilliant. It's got a, like a 15-liter tanker standard. Brilliant. It's got a screener standard. Brilliant. It's got removable rubber insoles and the pegs so I don't have to buy any pivot pegs brilliant so you know that that bike just served me so well that year um and it worked beautifully as a travel bike there's there's things I'd improve you know when I say when I wanted to get to Sweet Lamb for an event in Wales and I I was late because I'm always late setting off and you think damn it I just wish I'd got like 10 more horsepower so I could overtake instead of having to wait for three miles straight <laughs> you know in because it, it's like winding up a horse isn't it or a donkey with the himalayan you don't want to overtake and it's like right pick my moment pick my moment right gear fourth gear <laughs> you know and you're like da, 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 and you're charging Down. past the car <laughs> come on you know it's the slowest solid out you know when you're in a rush it's like the worst bite but when you're not in a rush and you're just popping around, say, the NC500 or around Ireland, like the, you know, the Kerry Coast and all that, it's just effortless. And, I've got, you know, I've got to say, like, the, I get, because I bought an Himalayan and I, I blogged a bit about it, I got people who bought Himalayans coming on my tours and I, I, universally they love their bikes because it's accessible. It allows them to go around Ireland without worrying about dropping the bike, worrying about 
paying a lot of money for it and worrying about it. and then i've never had one breakdown on me actually the most unreliable bike i've had on any of my tours is the c90 which you'd never believe but the c90 everybody sets off a c90 they always end up they never check the oil and they blow it they seize it up <laughs> one bloke blow didn't even get to the start line he forgot to check oil oh, <laughs> seized it up so um so that, i guess that's why i'm a big defender of the himalaya because it, it's it's a uh, it, it's an enabler for many many people but the same as the crf 250l and i've got nothing really against the crf 250l but for me when i do most of my traveling on the road I just like the fact I've got a bigger tank on the Himalayan. I've got a comfy seat as standard and I've got easy to put on panniers. So it's not, you know, if I was doing more trail riding, then the benefits of the CRF are there. But I think the fact that you've got two pretty decent bikes there, whether you want to do more trail or more road, CRF. And the Himalayan, I rode back from Bulgaria. I shipped that out to Bulgaria last year and came back through the Alps on the Himalayan. Now, I was riding with guys on CRF, um, on Africa Twins and GS12s. And yeah, they got me going up the hill, but on the way down, you know, when you start, you know, that Himalayan, when you get them pegs down, it's like, it's like on rails. Yeah, when I when we did our review on it, it, it surprised me. It's a fantastic, it, it's an unreasonably good handling road bike uh, in, in its class, but as an overall package. They've done a really good job with how they set it up, with the suspension. And if we don't talk about the front brake too much, I think it's a... Yeah, if, it, you, you, if you're better men, all right, they're, they're not too bad. you just got to, you got to strung a right wrist... Well, you got to work on your right wrist. I, I'm Get some strength in that grip. I have to. I mean, we just rode a DR Big last week, and any bike where I have to break with all four fingers and the brake to the bar is not my cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but apart from that, yeah. Royal Enfield have done as a package a really good job for a four grand bike. I don't think there's any question about that. Like you said, um, I mean to say they really just built it for the Indian market, and we we kind of got it as an afterthought. But I think what it highlights, though, okay, so. The fact that it's not the it's not the best bike in the world. It's not an amazing bike, but it really does shine a light on the fact that if we're talking about Royal Enfield in the same breath as a CRF 250L or GS, I mean, really, to me, it nails a 310GS, which is an embarrassment for BMW. Personally, like the Royal Enfield have built a bike that's comparable, arguably better or more suited as a travel package than something like a 310GS. Shows what steps they they made from the bullet. And I think having been to the, the design facility in Silverstone, they, I mean, Royal Enfield, if they carry through what they've got in the works, they're going to blow us away potentially with what they've got if they carry on this sort of utilitarian, good price, good value, but decent package. They, they, they really could just come out from nowhere and deliver the travel community some really good bikes to use. I mean, the Interceptor, okay, it's a, it's a crew, it's a custom bike, it's a road bike, but the step from the Himalayan to the Interceptor in terms of build quality and design and things like that is another leap forward again. So I do like the way that Royal Enfield are going. My only concern with Royal Enfield is that they're possibly going to emulate Triumph and therefore just end up badge engineering it to death and charging 12 grand because it's got a TF T screen and you know a fancy paint job. And, and that's my concern with Royal Enfield, that they'll, they see success as a measure, you know, reflecting the price tag and the technology involved on it, whereas really the success of the Himalaya was because it, it didn't have anything that nobody needed. It just was a bike that did its job. And I think if they lose sight of that, then they'll lose customers. They'd certainly lose me. You know, if their next bike's got a TFT screen and it's eight, it's eight grand or whatever, and it's competing with a F750, then, you know, forget about it. But if it's six grand and it's got 35 horsepower, 
and it's a bit lighter and it's got alloy rims instead of steel rims like off a train, then, you know, let's, that could, it could be a good thing. But I, I just, I, you know, I just like an honest bike. I think that's it. I like an honest bike. I don't like bullshit in a bike. And I think there's a lot of bullshit in the manufacturers. Um, so much bullshit because, you know, let's be honest, half the manufacturers, they don't, they don't know what's happening in the market. They, they live in a distant building that's got no, half of them don't ride bikes. Half the guys who work in the, in the, in the, in the, in, in the business side of things i mean like the honda ct125 i mean what how much interest has that bike got in the last sort of six months everyone's been talking about the honda ct125 what are honda doing not bringing it in why aren't they bringing it in because they brought in the shitty super cub and overcharged for it and nobody bought it so they think nobody's going to buy the super cub i mean what a way of getting people onto small adventure bikes the ct125 you know that could be that could be the start of a revolution for honda but it, instead, no, we're not getting it. Sorry. And I think it's such a shame that there's, a, there's appetite for things out there. There's real desire for affordable adventure or exploration bikes. But the manufacturers, I guess they obviously, like say Honda, they'll go, well, actually, we'll make seven grand if we sell a CRF. If you sell an Africa Twin 1100 with, uh, you know, a DCT for 18 grand, you know, let's focus on that. And that's such a shame because there's only a limited market. We're going to buy spend eighteen grand on an Africa Twin, uh, but I, you know we've got to get we've got to get young riders in. I, I think it always comes back to getting young young riders into the, and learning that travel on a motorcycle is actually really enjoyable. Uh, and uh, I, I wish the manufacturers would do more. I wish the industry would do more, but it, it's never going to, is it? Anyway, that's what it. it. I've cried like now. Then is that they need to bring back <laughs> yeah. the DRZ four hundred. That's what it sounds like. Well, they, they can't, can they? Let's be honest, they can't because it's, uh, yeah, and I, I know, but I know, and I know if you go on a forum, you know, everyone's waiting for this unicorn of 160 kilos and 80 brake horsepower, and then, and then they'll build it and nobody will buy it because there's so many whiners on. Well, I, I'm a good whiner. When you build that bike and you ride one, I don't know if you've ever ridden how much time you've spent on, say, a 701 Enduro or a 690 KTM. But in theory, when you adventurize that, that is that unicorn bike where it's 180 kilos and it's this and it's that. But, you know, if you maybe are Lyndon Poskett and you build Lyndon Poskett's dream bike, it's perfect. But whenever I've ridden a 701, it doesn't have any better capacity off-road than, say, a Tenere 700 or a 790 Adventure, but it has a lot more limitations. Um, oh, those, those KTM fans are just going to lynch you for that saying that. <laughs> but it doesn't... <laughs> they, they... Me, the 701 and the 690 is not an easy bike to ride. It is a, it is a, a fire-breathing monster in a smaller bike chassis. And what you're talking about as yeah. being easy to ride is forgiving. Like a, you want a gentle engine. You want it to not eat you alive. You want to feel in charge of it. And I don't think you get that when you build like the dream adventure bike, well, essentially a rally bike. My experience with rally bikes is that they're not easy to ride. They don't look after people that aren't skilled enough to ride them. So that's like a whole difference. So you could do a whole episode of this on that. Um, so if we cycle back a little. Have you ridden the, just a second, just a have you ridden the PR7? I have not not ridden the PR7. I have heard very good things about it from several different people. And from what I can see from the outside, it seems like by having a smaller, less fire-breathing engine, they've probably done a good thing for themselves. Yeah, yeah. I I had it on test uh, after Christmas. And I enjoyed it. I thought that was a good package. You know, for that sort of price, I thought decent tank, decent 
you know, it can carry luggage. They've obviously built a subframe for carrying luggage and things. I, I thought that was, I think for me, the problem, a, a bit like you say, for the novice rider or the intermediate, those kind of bikes with that taller seat height and that much power, they're a handful, certainly in an in, a British green lane. That's That was my only thought. But anyway. Uh, touching on your uh, R1200 GS, especially with your trip in Iceland, how how was the route affected by riding a bigger bike versus riding a smaller bike? Did did you did See, you that, always look at it when you were on the big bike like you were a bit more nervous to to go away from places that you knew you would be comfortable? And... Yeah, I mean, I did the I did some off roads, but you know the deep water crossings I, I just avoided because in a day I was on my own on a twelve twelve hundred with big metal panniers and uh, I mean I didn't always I went for three weeks and my wife was out for five days or six days so there was a lot of time I was off on my own. Um, and I guess you know that trip is a perfect example of where do you compromise on your bike because I went I rode up to Denmark for that trip uh, and then caught the ferry. So the GS12 was perfect for going to Denmark. You know, sit on the motorway, a thousand miles up to, to the port, whack cruise control on, perfect. You get across the island and you're going around the, obviously the the gravel roads, perfect. But then and a lot of the F roads were fine. But yes, obviously the bike was. I guess did become a limiting factor because my confidence, my ability, I can, I think I'm all right on, on a big bike off road, but when you've got luggage and you're in the middle of nowhere and you're on an F road where you've not seen anyone, I guess you start to think, ah, oh, you know, I'm not sure about this. So it would back me out a little bit. And obviously tire choice was an issue because you need a tire that's going to get you up to Denmark and back around Iceland and then also give you some grip off road. And I went with an anarchy wild, which was, you know, I, I find they're a good road tire and they're good off-road and they're good for longevity. I used to get twice as many miles out of a Anarchy Wild as I did, say, TKC 80. But even even on that trip, go, go to Denmark around and, 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 and then coming back down, I had to change the back tire in Reykjavik and I think that back tire was 300 quid, which is a little bit steep, I find. And they took the biggest gouge out of my room you've ever seen it look like. You know, it looked like he stuck a chisel on it and then put it around his machine. Um yeah, really ruined my rim. That was uh, no, I shan't mention who it was, just in case. But um, well, so, so only, the GS12, there is I mean, only one BMW place in Reykjavik. Yeah, you know, you know, what I mean, <laughs> don't you? Know? Um, you know, I think the worst thing was there wasn't much of a way of an apology, uh, and also because it might I bought my bike off you guys. Well, not off you guys. It was an ex off road skills bike, so the the rims were already a little bit chewed up. So, you know, he kind of just went, uh, <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, thanks. And I guess I'm a passive kind of guy. But if I'd have had a brand new GS with a brand new rim, I think I'd have been screaming for a new rim. Because he literally put a gouge around the, the outside rim about halfway around the wheel. Um, but anyway, that's, I'm not, that, I'm not that sore about it anymore but, um, at the time. Um, and, and so, yeah, the GS was perfect in some ways and I guess that's the reality isn't it of any bike so I would say if you're going around Iceland on your own something like a Tenere 700 or you know even me Himalayan or CRF250L or something just that little bit lighter and certainly with soft luggage I think would allow me to explore a bit more with confidence Helen Lloyds went to Iceland she just written a book she went on a Cerro with soft luggage you know some of the back trail back routes that she discovered on that bike were far beyond what I discovered uh, and so that Sarah really enabled her uh, to to find those to find those routes. So 
But then a Sarah would have been terrible if my wife had flown out and met me, you know, or a posty bike, you know. Is is a backseat of a Sarah? We're going around Iceland. Yeah, we're going around Iceland. Didn't Ed Larch do that? I'm I'm pretty sure him. No, he had two bikes. Oh, he always had two bikes. He never did it two up. I thought they might have done it two up for a bit. I mean, I met uh, I met you know a couple roads from Australia to India two up on a CT one ten. You know, two up. Imagine that all that way Australia to India. They were going to England, but I think they, for whatever reason, they didn't carry on. But they stopped at India. But they yeah, two up. I mean, that's love. That's love, isn't it? Or ignorance with no way out, maybe. So I think actually we've kind of segued perfectly into the next question. It's almost like you've written this script for me. Uh, And I think comfort for me is, is one of the things that is most underrated on a trip because especially when you start to get into harsh environments. And I think Iceland is a great example. Uh, I was really lucky to go to Iceland last year and ride around uh, with my partner. And we had a 790 Adventure KTM and a 690 Enduro KTM. And and in the harshness of the environment that is Iceland, when it's in full blow and it's cold and it's windy, even though it's the middle of summer, it's zero degrees and it's blowing a gale and there's frost and snow on the ground. I hated it. The difference in comfort between an adventure bike and a lighter enduro style bike was huge and it wasn't wind protection was a massive part of that and so was the whole setup of the bike and what it was designed for a 790 adventure is a softer more comfortable bike in its seat its suspension its vibration level and its wind protection so how do you go about making those smaller bikes more comfortable or getting yourself comfortable with what with that side of it like with a ct110 i'm sure riding up the himalayas you had no wind protection and (laughs) i'm sure there's been times where that has translated across even with the himalayan with no say heated grips or something like that how what so what is it that you do to make those bikes a bit comfier how do you deal with the fact that they're small and cramped like i'm six foot two so a tiny bike is a, a less comfortable experience over the course of one day, five days, ten days. Just man up. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you say that to my girlfriend. <laughs> She'll show you what it yeah, means. I don't. <laughs> Easy to grips. I mean, you know, well, well, um... you're not telling me that heated grips are not a necessity. They are one hundred percent. Absolutely. Just put a pair of socks over your gloves. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I went over the Himalayas now in a pair of Converse with one sock on because I'd lost my other sock. So, you know, I was freezing. Yeah, I can imagine. So, I mean, it depends on what you want. If you want in ultimate comfort and luxury, then heated grips, heated seat, heated jacket, heated suit. This is adventure. You're supposed to be cold. You're supposed to be wet. You're supposed to be miserable. And you can't mitigate against those things. And and certainly say on a you know around the world trip it's all part of it. If you're not suffering, you're not you're not you're not living. And I think there's That's a little bit of that. That's got to be the most British statement I think I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, that, but that's it. That's that's that involves with the big trip. You know, you 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 got to suffer for your sins and well for your for your thrills. And you know, the posty bar, it, a it's very comfortable actually. I've got to be honest. You know, maybe it's six foot two, you might be at the threshold of comfort on it, but. That bike is it is a place you can spend. I mean, I used to spend 12, 14 hours a day on that bike riding to do 400 miles a day. I mean, because the outback, I did 650, 700 kilometers a day. 
Now you've got to sit a long time in that saddle. So that bike was thankfully was very comfortable. I wouldn't have done it. I mean, those guys who go around the world on R ones and things, I think, you know, they, they must have skeletons made of steel to, 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 to do that. Um, I don't know how they do it, but posted bike, very natural riding position. Uh, arms and feet are in very comfortable positions. I've got a lambswool cover. You know, your saddle is probably the main thing. Yeah, lambswool cover made it very comfortable on the arse because if you know, if you sat, if you, I mean, I set off from Sydney without a seat cover, and I got about, I got to Newcastle, and I, I had to stop and put talcum powder on my th- on, on my car, on the back of my calves, and like ointment. I had to go to chemist to say I'm, What's that? I'm like, on a motor- not even hundred k. Yeah, so because you know sweat build up and then it it starts to get make you sore, but so obviously that I've got to be honest, a plug for cool covers. I do use cool covers now. Uh, Well, I've got them on all my bikes, uh, basically because I like John who runs the company and they're they're good. And I've had one on me and Malayan, and I I mean I can do I can do six hundred miles a day on me and Malayan. So I think arse comfort is probably the most important thing. Uh, and then, um, I, you know, um, as I say, coming across America, I got very fatigued, especially with a wife on my back and the luggage. And that's because you just, you're riding a bit, the bike's heavy to begin with, your luggage is heavy. I'm not saying my, my wife's not heavy, but as a combined package, that's a lot of weight. And, and by the time, like we were coming across Texas, I could only do maybe 150 miles a day before I was just flat. I just couldn't, I just couldn't, I, didn't, I just couldn't do it. So, uh, you know, with the lightweight of a smaller bike, I could do I could do the big miles day in, day out. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think whatever you've got, you've just got to make it suit you, really. Uh, there's no perfect bike out of out, out the fact. Oh, your, uh, your microphone's cut out there, Nathan. Oh, no. Technical issues. <laughs> I've got nothing. Your uh, your headphones have given up the ghost. Try ah, we're better. back. Yeah, sorry, mate. I, I think I needed something to fiddle with, and I pulled out the microphone jack. My fingers got restless. No problem. So you were saying, uh, yeah, about your twelve hundred. I was thinking I was talking about my guzzy. See, I bought the guzzy because I thought that's a nice, comfortable, long distance machine. And, you know, that, I think that's what frustrates me a little bit about mainstream journalism. Uh, and the way it works, you know that that's not a headline leading bike in any way. It's probably not going to win a group test, but as a travel bike, it, it's got a lot of it's got a lot of positives. Shaft drive, big tank, twenty three liter tank, um, air cooled, simple to maintain, simple to self service. It's got a lot of tick points, but obviously the way the way the press works these days it's uh, you know they, they want a lot of bang for the book i guess they're looking at something that performs well i.e perform, acceleration braking and things like that so um but i, I can't say i fell in love with that because yeah that's, that's the only thing i'm hoping i do well i'll have to sell it so along the along the lines of uh of building your bikes and and the different bikes you've had luggage is also one of those questions that if you dive into a forum you'll find a million answers for now on your posty bike you had saddlebags and on the top you had a plastic crate instead of a top box that you just stuff some stuff in a few bungee cords and then on your himalayan you've got the metal boxes with a roll bag on top when it comes to your luggage what are your priorities when you're traveling and what goes into your luggage like what are the things you have to take with you 
guess I mean um, you know it's one of them it's another one of them questions that I ha- you know forums is painful aren't they really when you when you when you, you know the endless questions a they'll start with what what bike should I buy it's like well all you're going to get is fifteen thousand different suggestions or what tires should I use I mean I just it bothers me that people need so much help making decisions in life. I think that ultimately <laughs> people need to just say, like, you know, just choose a tire. A tire is a tire. Luggage is luggage. You know, a riding suit is riding suit. A bike is a bike. I mean, we could spend 12 hours arguing the virtues of different bikes that we've talked about already, but none of it would get us anywhere. I mean, a bike is just a bike. A bike is two wheels and an engine. There's virtues of some. There's, there's the strengths in others. I mean, it's like top trumps. So you know, some's always, some's always going to better, better, be better at other things. But every single bike is capable, fundamentally, of pretty much the same thing, apart from if you want to do serious off road. Therefore, luggage. You know, I mean, there's people. I've got a milk crate strapped at the back of my post at the minute. Now, is a milk crate any worse than a 300 pound Touratech top box? I'd say not. But others say, yeah, it would be. I mean, I've got boom up panniers fitted to me, um, um, Guzzi. Now, should I have spent three months agonizing whether to get the boom ups or the givies? I don't know. I mean, ultimately, you've just got to take what you've got. And the posty bike had got the saddlebags already fitted, so I took them. The Himalayan, well, Himalayan, Royal Enfield self panniers for that, so I'll take them. But if actually, if I wanted soft luggage, I could have got some Lomos for 60 quid. Um, what, um, what did I take on my GS? I think I had metal mules on me, GS. And that's because I did a pannier test for Ride Magazine, and they won. So they let me keep them. <laughs> so I kept them on. <laughs> and that's probably the only free thing I've talked, I've got to be honest. Um, but, you know, like, who cares what, who's, who's, who makes your panniers? In the nicest possible way. It's, as long as they've got stuff, if, as long as they've got space to put in, stuff in them. The only objection I've got with panniers is when people put like the biggest pannier in the world on their bikes and then make the width of the bike at the back twice the width at the front. I, I kind of think, you, you know, know your limits. And I, I think it's very easy. I mean, when I set off from Australia on the posty bike, I, I had like three pairs of Converse and uh, five pairs of trousers and eight jumpers. By the time I finished that Sydney to London trip, I had like the shoes I was wearing, the clothes I was wearing, and maybe like an overcoat to put on, and then be ten. So I was down to maybe a pack list of fifteen kilos. So you could go, you know. So in theory, I was going around the world with fifteen kilos of gear, like absolutely zero, nothing. But equally, you know, you forget that quite quickly. And if I was going to ride from Lansdowne to John O'Groats tomorrow, I'd probably again take three pairs of shoes and eight pairs of trousers and four. You know, you, you kind of. So I think when you start off and you buy the biggest set of panniers, you're just setting yourself up to fail because you will fill those panniers with everything you can imagine to fill them with. When, when really, I mean, whether you're going around the world or lands into Johnny Groats, you need your basic camping gear, which I, I keep basic, you know, just a, I don't get an expensive tent. I just buy like, I guess, you know, now there's some great offers on tents. You can get a good tent for 60 quid, sleeping bag, roll mat, a stove if you're going to do any cooking, uh, and then riding gear, you know, whatever you've got. Uh, I mean, personally, I'm a big fan of the Kagul and the and the Army Surplus Store stuff because you can start with the shittest, leakiest RST jacket. Not saying RST leak, but sometimes I do. <laughs> and you can st- <laughs> and you could stick like a twenty quid Kagul over the top or a yeah. Marine jacket, and you, you've got a Klim jacket, hmm. but you haven't spent a thousand pound on a jacket. You know, you, you, there's 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 ways of just doing it and i think so your pack list for a week on the road from lands to john groats is identical to the pack list of around the world for a year because you could net you can never set off with everything you absolutely need 
for six months down the road. But you 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 know you think logically and you think right okay I'm coming into colder weather okay I'm gonna there's a war you go across America there's Walmart's everywhere okay I'm cold now I'm going into the Rockies I'm cold okay I'm gonna stop and buy a fleece I'm gonna buy some more jackets and, and, and or you go into warmer climates and you think actually I don't need all this stuff so you know you 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 basically must start with a small pack list and 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 develop it and 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 fine tune it because trying to second guess what you're going to need seven months or six months down the line in a country that you're not even in yet is impossible but all those countries have people and people buy clothes whichever countries they happen to live in so you're always going to get what you need as you go and and i think it's very easy to fall into that trap of trying to make pack lists i mean i I love those photos that people put and they, they lay their bike on the ground and then they spread out everything they packed on their bike and it's it's like more than the contents of our house <laughs> and you think that, you know that's really good but how much of that you're going to use um and i think it you know it comes possibly onto the social media side of travel now there are so many people making careers or trying to aspiring to make careers out of filming and blogging and things and i think pack lists have become almost dominated by the need to present yourself to a to a camera as you go along and a, I think people need to choose wisely whether that's the route they want to go down. I mean, somebody like Itchy Boots has done an amazing job of documenting her trip and looking like she enjoys it. And, and I think as a result, she's got a, thousands of followers. And rightly so, because I think you know the, the creativity and the editing and the hard work she puts into that is reap the rewards she deserves. But you've got to ask yourself, do you want to do that? Do you want to be in a hotel every night editing footage? Or do you want to be just down a market having a beer and eating you know, crickets? Or I don't know, you, you know, you've got to decide what you want from your trip. And I, I think, I think I was lucky. I did mine. I mean, I did my Sydney London trip 2009. So Facebook was kind of in its infancy and YouTube was a little bit there. And I had like a cheap helmet camera. And when I was bored, I'd make a bit of a film. But, you know, I didn't set out to make anything of myself. I just set out, set off to ride home. And I think people have really got to consider when they're setting off. What who they're doing it for? Are they doing it to generate an audience, or are they just doing it to, you know, make themselves happy or challenge themselves? Because it's very difficult to make yourself happy and make your audience happy because your audience are cutthroat. You know, they might might sound like friends when you're giving them everything they want, but they'll turn on you in a in a heartbeat if you stop giving them videos. Uh, and it can be, and it's they're very they're impossible to please your fan base if, if that's what you're trying to create because like, that's all they want you're a commodity to them and i don't think people always realize that i mean i got into it with a adv rider i posted a lot on there and then you, you won't post for three days and they'd be like is he dead what's happened to him oh he's not posted for a while it's like no i'm in the pakistan we're no signal you morons i, I can't post and then the people had People they they dissect how you're doing things and they dissect what you were doing and they'd start you know if you're somebody who's you know troubles if somebody if you're somebody who's troubled with your own negative thoughts then the last thing you need is somebody else punching you with their negative thoughts which is what wankers on the internet tend to do you know as you know as you know YouTube I mean YouTube is, is a beautiful place it's, it's a beautiful place there's so many nice people on there but it when you create something it's you create something out of your fragile ego and, and, and it's and, and, and <laughs> it doesn't take much for you to, for you to really crumble under that criticism and and i think so people have got to ask themselves do they want that criticism when they're on the road or do they just want to enjoy meeting people face to face rather than having 
like you know Barry in Texas or Kent telling you that you've bought the wrong gloves. <laughs> I, love how, uh, <laughs> I love you. I love your rant about this. Um, so let's Sorry, talk about. Rant, not... No, it's it's fantastic. I'm sure it sits in a lot of people's a lot of people's psyche, and it's probably things that people need to hear. So when you started your your trip, your your first one. What were your mechanical abilities like? Had you spent a lot of time working on bikes before or were you one of those people that was like, how does a spanner work? Um, and nowadays, what do you carry in terms of tools to work on your bikes? And what are you kind of just like, uh, I'll find someone. Well, I set off now with a, if you've ever seen the video, you probably not, but I recorded a, a helmet camera when I was setting off on Sydney on a bike the first post, but the first booster bike only made it a thousand kilometers because the bottom end went in Brisbane. Now, if you listen to that video, you can hear what sounds like a cement mixer, but what turns out to be the bottom end of my bike. <laughs> so I sat off on a bike that the headlight wasn't working and it got a broken spoke and I didn't know how to change a, bro- you know, a spoke. I set off and I got a punch on day two and I didn't have any tire levers because I thought I'd be able to change them with my cutlery. <laughs> and obviously, you can't change a tire with cutlery like, even on a posty bike. So let's say that my mechanical ability on that start that trip was zero or naive at best. Now, I guess you learn quickly. And, and again, it stems back to the beauty of a posty bar is that even an idiot can do something with it. Uh, I mean, I had my limitations, valve clearance. I never did learn how to do valve clearance. But what I had an ingenious trick of using a piece of pen, paper and a pen and writing 0.005 and then showing it to a mechanic. And then pointing at my valves every like five thousand miles, and then he'd check them, and it was magic, you know. And 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 I learned to do my own tires and and things like that. I think adversity forces your hand at being determined, and so therefore, when you're by the side of the road with no means of fixing a puncture, you do anything to get move forward and therefore you flag down anyone you will yeah anyone passing or you know i don't know and the good people come to your rescue because without them you'd, i'd still probably be there so uh, you know what i love about a simple bike is the simplicity that re- within reason you can get it fixed uh, and there's not a lot to go wrong with it and so in terms of what would i take now that obviously i'd take puncture repair stuff tires uh, tubes puncture kit tire levers but beyond that uh, maybe the himalayan himalayan's got a few weak points so it's had a few throttles were snapping quite prematurely on some of them because i think the the routing was a bit off i'd probably take some grease for the head bearings because they don't have any in um (laughs) but what else would you what else would you take you know what you're going around the world tomorrow on a himalayan what or a posty bike there's only so much you could take now, what last year I took eight, I guided eight people across the outback on posty bikes, which was probably the most reckless, uh, regret not regretful because it was challenge. I mean, it was probably the most challenging trip I've ever done. I've got to be honest. Sydney's London, by comparison, to guiding eight people across the outback from Brisbane to Perth was was a walk in the park. But on that trip, we carried a a backup truck, a backup truck. No, I mean it was a guy with a high ace, a two wheel drive high ace. Uh, called called Thomas, who, who who just saw what I was up to, so joined a backup van. I said, "Yeah, that'd be cool." Uh, and in that van, we had like cylinders, we had pistons, we had barrels, we had we had like everything to make a, a Frankenstein pasty bike. And you know what we needed? Nothing. We didn't need a thing. 
like eight bikes across the outback. Well, we needed, I think we got four punctures. And my carb on day one failed because the clip, the, the circlet came off the needle. So we carried all that stuff and didn't need any of it. Um, thankfully, we had the van for when somebody broke the leg and somebody else broke their arm. And that's the most useful time that, yeah, yeah. How do you manage that on yeah, a that, toasty bike? Well, I guess, I guess that's, I guess that's hits home, doesn't it? You know, whatever bike you're on, you can, things can go wrong. Now the guy with the arm, he, unfortunately, Martin, he just got cross rutted, went over the bars and, uh, he broke his, I don't know what that bone is there, but he broke that. So that was his trip gone. So he was eight, eight hours in a van to the nearest hospital and they just slinged him up. And then poor Chris, he, we'd done, cause this was mainly off like dirt roads. So we did, uh, out to Burke, then out to Wenaring. Uh, and then uh, Strzelecki track, Udna Data, uh, up the up the Stuart Highway, and then out so the Great Central Road, out past Ulleru. So that road, I think, is 1,100 kilometres of dirt. And he, we were on the last 30 kilometres, and he just, uh, I don't know, he, went, he hit some soft sand, and back back end flew out, and uh, the bike went down, and spiral fractured his tibia and fib. And, and he got airlifted out to Perth, and then operated on and that. So, you know, I, I think that was a real good... Uh, Oh, it was an eye-opener for me. I was just glad that everyone got through alive. I mean, there was a tour, there was a group. I don't know if it was a tour group. Not a lot of details came out that did that. They were doing the Great Central Road a few weeks after us, and two died within two within in a space of a 24-hour period. Two of their group died. One died, I think, from a heart attack, and the other one died because he crashed at at night on a on a. I think he was on an Africa Twin. So. I suppose, you know, the beauty of a slow bike is that you're never going to get yourself. You can still hurt yourself, but there's a parameter as to how much damage you're going to do. Now, if, if we'd have been on, say, I mean, let's talk Sydney to London. If I'd have been on a fast bike and if I had have had that same, I mean, I was on fire determined to get to where I was going. I rode that bike like the width as fast as that bike will go. But as fast as that bike will go, we're still only 40 miles an hour. If I was riding a bigger bike, and, as, and I could do 80 miles an hour and then back Indonesian roads, then things could easily gone wrong. So it depends what your mental state's like. You know, if, you're, if your feet are on fire and you can't bear to be in the same spot and you ride everywhere like a lunatic, then 40 miles an hour is a nice cap. If you're nice and calm and you can control your throttle, then you could go out world on an eye booster and not hurt yourself. But I would have died if I'd have been on anything faster. So just because that for you it was, it was a nice set of armbands as you swam around it's a nice restrictor isn't it <laughs> yeah it was a restrictor i mean i rode that coming down the Himalayas. you say you know can you ride off road on a small bike i came down the mimalayan passes on manali to lay highway like uh, like like there were no you know there's no stopping you and and, and I, I i remember when i got to top of across america I'd, I'd come out west uh out of colorado springs and i think it was a bit of the tat so i joined that and i rode up this this piece through this forest and i got to the top and these guys on drz forages and stuff and we all said hello and said oh where you come from I said oh, oh australia you know and they're like look like you know they were nice but they had a bit of a joke and then anyway, we, we, the neck, the trail went down the hill, down to a petrol station about ten kilometres, and they set off on their DRZs, and I, I was after, you know, I was after them. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm slowly in converse in that, but and I'm slowly on road tyres. But when you have got fire in your belly and and, and, and focus in your eyes, you, you ride like a lunatic. And so that posty bike, thankfully, kept me alive. So um, you've got to ride, ride what's not going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think is 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 so anyway. You you kind of touched on it a little bit there as well. Um, but when it comes to preparing bikes and building bikes for trips, obviously with your first project. You clearly didn't do a lot because it blew up a thousand Ks later. And even in the videos I've seen of you, that was very much like, I just bought this bike. We're going to leave tomorrow. Obviously, with the the hindsight of experience, has that process changed? Do you now put a lot of time into making sure that bikes aren't going to explode in the middle of nowhere? And if you do, what are the things that you try to be most aware of when you're preparing for your trips with the bikes that you take? I think I learned quickly on the posty bike one because I, I set off on the first bike and the bottom end went in Brisbane and I stopped at 110 motorcycles in Caboolture and he said like, you know, he's like, where are you going? I said, England. He said, what? Well, your bottom end's gone. I said, oh. So, so in the end, he he could have repaired that engine, but to be honest, that bike was an eBay special, cheap, and I knew, you know, it had got me to Brisbane and that was the end of its journey. He got a posty bike that had been meticulously looked after, big tank on it, you know, everything was set up for long range travel. So I think I learned quickly, start with the right bike or one that you think is going to finish your trip. I think starting with a bike that's going to finish, you think is going to finish your trip is the best thing. And then Joe at 110 said, if you want to get to England, you change this oil every thousand miles and you don't ride it at full thrash. Now, obviously, I'd ridden from Sydney to Brisbane at full thrash. So I set off from Brisbane on part throttle at 65 kilometers an hour. And that's and I changed the oil at thousand miles. And that's how I got to England, changing the oil at 1,000 miles and sitting at 65 kilometers an hour. The postie will go a bit quicker, but you let the engine, you listen to the engine. So mechanical sympathy, I learned that very quickly, having blown up the first bike. The, you know, and looking after your bike and giving it what it needs. You don't have to be a top mechanic, you just have to be sympathetic. And I think, you know, we could all be, we could all, whatever bike you've got, you could be sympathetic to it. Uh, so Dorothy, I mean, Dorothy, bless her, the postie bike, she... She started off with 40,000 kilometers. She got to England with 80, 78,000 kilometers. Uh, and in England, she had only needed piston rings, cam train, and clutch plates, and then she went across America. And she's on 98,500 now, and all she's had is a new piston, new top end, and a new spokes, new spokes on the back. But she's got nothing else. Original, otherwise, she's completely original. Original bottom end, original, uh, I mean, rubber seals, like, uh, head bearings, and everything. Um... Uh, now the reason i buy new bikes is because like i think sometimes when you're buying second-hand bikes you just buy other people's problems i bought a husqvarna tr650 for more than the himalayan and that i love that bike to bits i think it's like it's such a shame that was such a short-lived bike because it's a fantastic like dual sport bike i love it on the road it power the power of it is so smooth and strong like it was a road bike, it's brilliant. But I bought it with somebody else's problems. Like somebody else had, had lowered it and they'd took the spaces out of the suspension. So one one spring was under no tension, so I had to have them rebuilt and it knackered up the wiring, so I had to have the wiring redone. And like you know, it, and it's like it's temperamental now. So I sometimes think like with the second hand bikes, unless you really know what you're getting, you're just buying trouble. And, and that's been the frustration with the Himalayan. People say, oh, why don't you just buy an old DRZ400 or buy an old Transalp or an old Africa Twin? It's like, well, I could do that, but then do I, I don't really want to start going through a bike to make sure it's right and reliable. I just want a reliable bike. Like, I, I just want a bike that runs. I'm not into masochism and having a bike that breaks down. I mean, there was a guy, 
you set off, he bought an X, you know, XR250, replaced every valve, every gasket and seal on it, and then it still broke down in Russia. I think, oh, you may as well just do bought a CRF250L. Like, why didn't you do that? Um, so, you know, for me, as somebody who don't, I don't like working on bikes, I've got to be honest. I've got eight posty bikes, and they're a pain in the arse because, you know, I'll have a carburetor fail on one, and another one will need a chain set, and another. And I'm like, oh, I just wish I'd bought eight Himalayans or eight CRS because they'd run and I wouldn't have to worry about them. So, I, I, you know, but, but then other people like tinkering. And that, I think it ultimately comes down to what you, where, who you are, what you want to do and, 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 and what your preference is. Again, there's no right option, is there? You know, I like having yeah. a new bike because it's a warranty. Uh, you know, I, I bought that again, Himalayan. I like it because I bought I can get a brand new bike with two years warranty for four grand. Like, um, if I've got 16 grand, would I buy something else? Yeah, probably. But my, 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 as a person who doesn't like mecha- mechanics, is not very good at it, likes the bike to run on a limited budget. Again, that's why the Himalayan ticks all, ticked all my boxes. I've stretched myself for this guzzy. You know, that's probably foolish given the current <laughs> coronavirus climates. I mean, I bought that for the Amer- I've got. I was supposed to be guiding 12 across America in August. I did it last time, 2018, on a Himalayan. And obviously, it's, when you've got customers on an Africa Twin and a GS, you don't want to be traveling at 60,000 miles an hour. So I bought that guzzy. Uh, and obviously, that trip's been cancelled and postponed to next year. So that, that guzzy's kind of sat a bit idle. Uh, but again, you know, I, I, just want to do, I just want a new bike that runs. I, I don't want to fanny around. Uh, although, having said that, being a guzzy, it's got a few niggles and a little quirks that mean it might need dealer work every now and again um yeah well i don't know i'm off so that's it so but it's your budget isn't it so you know but the same at the end of the day there's some really good bikes out there say you bought a second hand v-strom 650 or a second hand v-strom thou or a cb500x or trying to think what else is there you know some really good like v super tenere you get some really good value super tenere's now there are some good bikes out there uh, for travel, certainly for travel. Hmm. Um, so it's always those that go under the radar, isn't it? They're not always like the the class leaders, but they're really good value. Like the Super Tenere, yeah, you get a really good Super Tenere for six or seven grand. And I think that was the problem when when I was coming to buy the Guzzi, I almost bought another GS twelve hundred because I sold the original because I needed the money. And when I bought the Guzzi, I thought, well, oh, because there was a Colchester Guzzi were doing brand new Guzzi's V eight fives for nine and a half. So you get a brand new Guzzi, or you can get a four year old GS twelve hundred. And I, and I think you know that would a GS twelve hundred be, still be a better bike at four years old? Possibly. Um, I don't know. I just like new bikes. I'm a tart at the end of the day. No, but I think you've touched on some really interesting points across this whole conversation of that. That ultimately, those bikes that you, as you say, like fly under the radar. I think they fly under the radar because when when you test a bike in isolation and you go and ride it on the merit of its performance and how it fits in like a, a weekend warrior stance, like most of the riding that you would do as a journalist is you go for a ride, see how the bike is. You might ride 250 miles or 300 miles. Those bikes that slip under the radar generally do because they're not exciting. They don't appeal to... <laughs> to the excitement factor in people and even say a bike like a v-strom 1050 which is a i think a fantastic road bike it really 
it's fallen flat in the past because it's a little bit ugly. It's a little bit blancmange. It's a, like not a particularly, it doesn't pull at your heartstrings. And ultimately most motorbikes, the reason people buy the bike they buy is, is not because, I think anyway, not because it's the perfect bike for them. It's because it's the one that they want. And I think ultimately it's really interesting across the decisions of bikes you've made it's always because it's the right bike for you in that moment. Does that make sense? Like the thing that's pulling at your heartstrings is that I really like these characteristics about this bike, not that just this bike's really cool. Do you know? Because the 1200 GS often yeah. wins those tests because it is a fantastic road bike, an incredible road bike. And if you're good off-road, you can do amazing things on it. And if you don't ride it in muddy ruts, it's a very flattering off-road bike. So it's always going to do well in an individual test. If you're a weekend warrior, great bike. But if you want something that is more fit for a specific purpose, you know what your limitations are, maybe it's not the right bike, but people still buy it thinking it is. And I think that's the most interesting takeaway from this conversation is that maybe there's a, a wider net that can be cast to fit the purpose for the needs you have, even if you're theoretically in your head sacrificing some things that maybe you don't need. Say, like you've said, top speed on the road or the comfort of like a bit more wind protection and some cruise control or whatever that is, do you know? Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think the power thing has been an interesting thing, you know, and I think a lot of it because of journalism, historically, all journalists have all come from road bike backgrounds and motorcycling for so long was just about going fast on a Sunday, wasn't it? Yeah. And that's, and I think it's tarred the way that the media journalists or whatever handles as punters view bikes. You know, the the fact that like the Africa Twin came out with 95 horsepower and, and it gets charged as being underpowered or the V-Strong gets charged as being underpowered. You think if you cannot ride a 95 brake horsepower bike quick, then there's something wrong with your riding, not with, with the bike. Like, you know, I, I think if you can't ride a 47 brake horsepower bike quick, there's something wrong with your riding. I mean, like the CB500X, yes, it's got limitations when you're, um sat on a motorway down to to germany perhaps but on an average british road i think if you can ride a 500x flat out then you're flying because that you know it's still 47 horsepower you can still chew along i mean i, I love it I, I do i love being at the front of me in my lane and i'm you know i've got somebody on, on, a, on a faster bike behind and I, you know you're riding wheels off i love like you know being able to ride the wheels off a bike is kind of one of the most exciting things isn't it Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, totally. I th- so I, I think, um, oh, I don't know, you know, bikes are bikes, aren't they? You know, we all get, we're getting caught up too much in what bike. Just buy it. I mean, if you're listening, just buy a bike and go somewhere on it. Or kind of use the bike that you've got in your garage. I think that. Yeah, that's, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Sorry, that's. Yeah. Like, are we, it was quite interesting. I asked this same kind of similar question to, to Lyndon Poskett when we did a podcast with him. And, and my kind of question was, when you're helping other people choose their perfect adventure bike, because, you know, uh, Lyndon's kind of premise is is quite uh, an extreme version of adventure riding, I think. He really likes to go fast, get lost, get stuck. He's an incredibly good rider. He's very capable and self-confident. And a lot of the people that follow him aspire to do what he does. And so I, I asked him that exact question of what do you say to people when you're advising them on what bike to buy? You know, his bike is also a freak of nature bike. It's a 690 KTM rally that he's converted and put hundreds of hours of engineering into. 
And his advice was, if you've got a bike in the shed, use that. It doesn't matter because you're still going to have a good time. If you give me a C90, I'm going to ride it. I'm going to get lost on it and I'm going to have a great time. If I've got a WR250 in the shed, just go ride it. If you're riding for two weeks, a WR250 is going to be fine. Accept the limitations of it and go and ride it. And I think that's a really, you know, it's almost like you've done the same thing where you're like, well, this bike's the bike for me. This is the one I've got in the shed. I'm going to ride that. And I think that's also really cool because it kind of, embraces the spirit of exactly like you've just said not getting tied up in worrying about the gear and spending too much time paying attention to now and living a little bit more in the moment of what you're actually doing does that make sense and it hasn't limited your fun like even then when you started to talk about riding a twisty road on on a himalayan you're still able to ride quick get that buzz that you get from riding quick because ultimately that's the the point of a motorcycle for me is that you can go places and you can explore maybe more than you can on a car. But really, the joy of a motorbike is when you get that twisty road or you get it across a river or you ride to the top of a mountain. There's like something a little bit more uh, embracing and exciting and adrenaline filled about that that makes the whole experience of traveling a little bit better than it would be if you did the same thing in a Land Rover. Do you know? Yeah, I, I guess it, it ultimately it means the choice of bike is redundant, doesn't it? As long as... <laughs> yeah well you've just said it you know it's all about the, the adventure that they get and all the nice feelings and therefore the bike really is redundant hmm. the choice of the bike which it is isn't it i mean it's unless you're doing something specific like you know you want to go off road fast or something like that then obviously it becomes a little bit or you want to do a trials bike i mean you're not going to take your v-strum on a trials course so then you've therefore you're oh, going to choose your, the steering choose lock on your it's too bad yeah, you won't get very far. But, um, yeah, there's too many hours, too many man and lady hours wasted on agonizing over things. But we all get involved in it, don't we? You know, I get, you know, we all, I don't know, human nature. We, we say we don't care, but we do care really. So Damn I'm, you, somebody said oh, Himalayan's not very good, and then I cry, and then I fight with them <laughs> on in, online. But it was the same when I had the GS12. I mean, I do get passionate about the bike, so that's, I guess that's my problem. You know, I had the GS12 when, everybody, when the stanchion issue was happening. And, you know, there's always there's your typical keyboard warrior bloke saying, oh, GS, oh, it's a load of shit. Look at this picture, this you know, random picture we've just found online with a broken fork, although it's got no, you know, we don't know the story around it. And there's one going around at the minute of a triumph, isn't there? Somebody... Uh, somebody's you know somebody's put a post up of a broken subframe on a oh, it's like a, st- a street triple I think you know saying oh I'm just riding along and my subframe broke and then there's a picture of them in the Alps with like the pillion on two massive GV panniers and this huge back like back Venturi style pack of things you think what bollocks like you you know and it's, it was the same with the GS12 and that that stanchion issue obviously I just you know people love people love to hate bikes. Uh, yep as a bike reviewer on youtube you cannot imagine (laughs) oh i know i saw what happened with your your adventure bike of the year and you know when you pick it yeah it's always gonna happen isn't it when you pick a winner um and and i think when you tell honda fans that their bike isn't very good (laughs) no i think honda fans i don't i hope nobody targets me in this but uh, i did a test for bennett's and 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 and, um the premise of bennett's test was like four journalists and we all had to pick our best bike but best mid-size adventure bike and they'd already decided which 
four bikes we're going to use the ktm 1090 new tiger bmw f850 gs and the africa twin adventure sport and that was the last one to choose and the only bike left was the africa twin and the premise was that you had to say why your bike that you chose was the best bike but the problem was i, I don't like the africa twin i think it's really disappointing <laughs> so so bennett's did this video and i'm like i, I really tried to be enthusiastic but I can't be because I love the 1090. I thought that 1090 were amazing, and then yeah, the video comments on that were it's really you know like that guy don't that guy no shit, <laughs> you know because you'll say like oh I didn't like DCT you know it's not for me tight controlled stuff I just can't get on with it yo that guy knows you know he he's well, I don't know you know yeah take it people get really caught up but I think the Honda guys are probably worse than anyone bless them yep <laughs> you won't find an argument <laughs> from me there. Um, so yeah, my, my are, last question, uh, before we ask the last question, um, if anybody watching has got a question they want to ask, um, feel free, no obligation. Um, so my last question, and I think this is a really interesting one because I think it comes up for debate a lot in adventure bike circles, on forums, amongst people that are very much experts as well. Even people very close to me have very different opinions on this fuel injection versus carburetor now you have ridden a carburetor bike around the world and fuel injection every day <laughs> and you've now fuel own injected. a fuel injected but very simple bike but with fuel injection so which yeah you've obviously said there fuel injection is the way for you but, easy but why? why why would you want a carburetor well, because have you ever been at 5,300 meters on a posty bike that can't get any <laughs> any air in? That's why. If anybody says you should have a carburetor, I tell you, get get to Himalayas on a CT110 and see if you get any power into it. Because there's none to be found. You can do whatever you want with your clips and, and your jetting. There is no power whatsoever. Um, and so fuel injection every day. I mean, it don't go wrong, does it? Like fuel injections is it's like breathing. It's, it's it's so reliable these days. I, I don't you don't hear of any. I've never heard of anyone having fuel injection issues on a bike. Uh, I mean, even the CT the CT one ten carburetor. What causes me problems on the CT one tens now? They're back in Britain. Carburetors. Why? Because they pick up dirt and they, they gum up, and then you know the fuel sits because it's got the ethanol in. It sits for two weeks. What you gonna do? Take the carb off. Drain the carb clean the jet, clean the needle, but, you know, it's like my life is devoted to cleaning CT-110 carbs. The CT-125, when it was revealed as fuel injection, it's like, wow, that's, 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 I'll have that's 10. like a lottery. <laughs> I'll have 10, yeah. Fuel injection and a kick, I mean, fuel injection and electric start. There's even people who say, why don't bikes have kick starts these days? I'm like, why would you, I can do that, or I can get a kick start out, and I can find top dead center, and I can, you know, it's like why, why? Uh, so I'm much. I'm, I must admit, I'm a fuel injected guy. But as you say, I don't like tinkering with bikes. I just like something that works. I, I, there's other things, obviously. I think there's a limit to technology. Uh, you know, like keyless ignition. You know, I hear too many stories of it packing up and things. And I just think, what what issue is that solving? Uh, what you know? So if I'm going around the world on a bike and it had keyless ignition, I think that's that'd be the first place I look for a fault. Uh, TFT screens, I guess they they seem robust. I can't see what issue they have. But electronic suspension, I love electronic suspension on my GS12. But is that an area that ultimately is going to let itself down after thirty thousand miles, possibly? So I guess with new technology, you've got to think. Well, what's the be- cost? I mean, it's benefit, isn't it? Cost versus benefit, and uh, and if 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 there's something added to the detriment of reliability, then I'd certainly be against it. But I just personally can't see where the detriment of fuel injection is. I, I think. It, 
if there were lots of stories coming out of it failing, then yes. But for me, with my ear to the ground, I don't, I don't hear it. So, uh, I suppose so in, I know, in theory, uh, the argument is, is that because the system is more complicated, because there's small wires involved and injectors and so on, that it can go wrong. And when it goes wrong, you don't necessarily have the capacity to fix it as easily you know you need a soldering iron and you need some good soldering skills and you need a multimeter maybe and that's if you're good at it uh and then you need a way to clean an injector or a replacement injector so i think in terms of like the fear factor because it's maybe a bit of a newer system in terms of the knowledge to fix it. Is it that new though anymore? No, is not in terms like of how new it box? actually is, but in terms of the knowledge of fixing it. I remember when I was uh, when I when I was still trying to be fast on an enduro bike. Um, I raced a Husky for a couple of years, and I had quite a few injector problems. But like you say, those don't exist anymore. I haven't had an injector problem in seven or eight years. And even when you did have them, nine times out of ten, it was a case of replacing a small plastic nozzle with a new one, which is probably no harder than move cleaning your jet out anyway and it doesn't really happen because we use fuel filters and so on so um, yeah, yeah yeah i think i mean i'm not saying that people who like carburetors are wrong but i, I think my <laughs> personal preference would, would be fuel infection i mean it sounds like you're it's saying like, they're wrong like, a little bit you it's okay I'm not it's a safe space i mean like an iron that you put on the fire to warm up is more reliable than what the one that you plug into your wall socket ultimately isn't it but i'd still take a wall socket iron over one that i have to light a fire and heat up every day of the week and i just think there's a stone age and then there's somewhere in between stone age and modern age and i think fuel injection is kind of in between where it's still reliable but it's not like trying to it's not like a space age so i'd be happy i mean if you if you're going around world on a bike, there's chances are you're gonna to have to get on a plane at some point. And I, I, I guess they don't have carburetors anymore, do they? I'm sure they're fuel injected. So if I'm gonna put my faith in a fuel injected airplane, I think I'm happy to put faith in a fuel injected Himalayan. I'm sure. I'm sure my dad is uh, is listening to this at some point uh, today, and you just made him a very happy man. <laughs> it's an argument he's been Why? maintaining since about 2001. Your dad's a man of wisdom. What can I say? Yeah, there we go. I don't know. I mean, there's no right, is there? No. There's no. I mean, I don't want to. Nah, it's just. It's just where I like it. I can't say I like simplicity. With very good. Very good. So, Thank you. Um, yeah, I think that's the end of my questions. We uh, we managed to get to a, a chunky one hour thirty one minutes, a little bit longer than normal. Wow. Who knew? Uh, is my mum still listening? <laughs> I don't know. What's your mum's name? <laughs> I can't tell you. Uh, <laughs> well, you don't know your <laughs> mum's name. Um, so we always, no, I, I always, share. She's got a, yeah. Go on. I always like to end the podcast by just giving uh, our guest uh, an opportunity to explain to the people watching what it is they do uh, and where they can find you. So over to you. What do I do? I, I, I wait for furlough. Uh, no, I don't wait for furlough. I wait for coronavirus to end. I mean, mainly my ba- business at the minute. I try my hand at journalism, but I, j- I just can't play the game. So I'm not very good at it. I do bits, but my main business has been tour guiding, like garbage runs. So I take people, Land's End, Johnny Goats, Ireland, America, next year, Japan and Iceland. Uh, and I guess the fundamentals are, I just, I like taking people out. I don't like hand-holding them too much. I like giving them freedom to make their own decisions. Uh, I like trying to keep prices as affordable as possible. And I tried to make it like a planned adventure, but not planned so they don't have any adventure. 
Uh, and so it's a fine line. So when we go across America, we're all on WhatsApp. If people want to take off for a few days and go a different route or stay somewhere else, they can do. And then you just say, oh, tonight I'm here. or And then we drop in and we'll meet them in two days. So that gives, for somebody who's never been across America, that's a lovely way of having the safety net, but without the handholding. So that kind of, that's how I do things. That's how I do my trips. And I think it make, makes travelers of people by the end of it. I kind of don't, I love repeat business, but I don't want people to think that they've got to come with me to go on the next adventure. I'd like to prepare people for their own trips. So that's that. Um, obviously, this year's trips have been jettisoned by a certain virus. Uh, so I've got eight posty bikes down here in North Devon. I'm taking people on day rides or weekend rides. Uh, and you can find out more about that on thegarbagerun.com. Uh, and I'm also, I've also just written uh, The Amazing Adventures of Dorothy, which is the children's adaptation of my Sydney to London trip about a posty bike called Dorothy, who is one day tasked with taking a very important parcel to the Queen of England. She doesn't know what's inside the parcel, but she has to ride to England to deliver this parcel. So that's aimed at like 10-year-olds or thereabouts to try and get them thinking that there's actually more to life than Fortnite and... Um, in, in, in Instagram or whatever they're on these days. So it's just trying to say, look, there's a world out there. There's things to see, there's things to do. So we'll see. That I've, I've got 450 pre-orders there going out now. If anybody wants a copy of that, it's on www.nathanmillward.com. And I've also opened up a temporary uh, unit called Dorothy's Speed Shop, which is a base for me to work out of and hopefully do more, a few more videos and, and use the, as a base for the posty bites. So I've got banners, I've got T-shirts. I'm basically a merchandising uh, whore I've become, <laughs> because as a self-employed uh, professional motorcyclist, which is on my, my child's birth certificate. What does your dad do? How do you choose what your dad does when he does, doesn't even know himself? So we, we had to say professional motorcyclist, <laughs> which is such a you know vague thing, isn't it? Is he a stuntman? No, he's not a stuntman, but he does stunts. Um, and so... Uh, <laughs> So that's it. That's that's what I do. And next year, I don't know. I've got a nine-month-old boy and a dog that he's feeding. So uh, I do whatever pays the bills. I think your dog looks like it needs a lot of feeding as well. It's not a small puppy, is it? it it's not a big. It's not as big as it as she looks. Actually, she's a. She uh, the, the 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 camera is not very flattering. <laughs> so um, if you are, that's it. Well, thank you very much for your time. If you are, no, thank you for inviting. No problem. Sorry, Ewan come, mate. Is it Ewan, Ewan, was it Ewan tonight? Ewan McGregor tonight? <laughs> <laughs> so if you're new here um, and you're not one of our Patreon subscribers, this podcast is normally for our Patreon subscribers only. Um, it's something we do three Thursdays a month. Uh, and on the other Thursday, we do a live stream. And it's always something like this, where we talk about a specific subject, we break it down, we take a deep dive with a more person who is more expert in that subject than myself, and find out what they know that can help others learn to get better. In the past, those podcasts have been about writing technique, or we did one with Lyndon Poskett, where we discussed how to build uh, your perfect adventure bike. We did one with Patsy Quick on the steps you would need to go through to be someone that can finish the Dakar rally, and so on. If you're interested in that, uh, head over to our Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash break magazine. And the only other thing we've got going on is we just released some new merchandise. I'm wearing one of those t-shirts right here. Um, and you can find that on the break magazine website as well. We tried to make some merchandise that was a little bit motorcycle orientated, but didn't scream. Look at me. I love break magazine because nobody knows what that is. So yeah, I hope you've had a good time. 
thank you very much for listening or watching whichever one you're doing and we'll be back next thursday where we are talking about dakar rally um the changes what's happened what's happening and so on um i'll be there with a beer i'll have some guests and yeah thank you very much for your time have a good evening